everybody. We just got done talking with Dr. John Mead about how the Old Testament was copied and preserved, and it was an awesome conversation, but we just wanted to provide a little bit of context before we jumped into the episode. Yeah, it ended up being a longer conversation, so we're going to split it up into two parts, but it's giving background to his book that he co-wrote with uh, Dr. Peter Gurry called Scribes in Scripture, The Amazing Story of How We Got the Bible. So, but we wanted to just talk through some of the the terms and definitions and give a, a layout for what we did. Yeah. So he starts off by talking about exegesis. So what is, we've read for that a couple of times actually in our podcast. Yeah. So what is exegesis? Yeah. So I, I think we, we, yeah, we've defined it earlier. It, it's something, it's similar to interpretation. It's a method of interpretation that's usually more focused on the original languages and the historical background of the biblical text. So it's kind of like the culmination of a Greek student is exegeting um, Hebrews or something like that. Right. Yeah. You you walk through the text verse by verse and all the details and nitty gritty okay. of, of yeah interpreting it. Okay. Yeah. And then he talks a lot about canon and canonical lists. Can you talk about those? What are those? Yeah. So this isn't canon in terms of the thing that shoots cannonballs. Okay. okay? This is, it's a word that just means rule. Okay. It's the standard of our faith. So okay. these are the books determined by the church that are the standard for the faith. So they're the books of the Bible that are, that are canonical, that are God breathed, that, that we judge mm-hmm. to be scripture. So because, scripture. because they're canon, they're in our Bible. So yeah. whenever we say canonical list or a canon, that's the books in our Bible. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Can you um, just do a brief walkthrough of Old Testament history really quick? Right. Right. Yeah. So we're going to talk about it or Dr. Mead talks about all these different texts and stuff mm-hmm. throughout history. So if you just think like Abraham is around 2000 BC. Okay. Okay. You get into David is around a a thousand BC. Mm-hmm. Israel goes into exile around five hundreds ish. Okay. And Israel or Judah? Are, well, Israel and Judah. I, I'm just saying okay. these just are general. very, very broad okay. dates. So 500. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls are discovered in, I mean, 1900s. I mean, later, but okay. our earliest text is from 250 BC. Mm, so after the exile. After the exile. Okay. Yep. And so in the Dead Sea Scrolls are found lots of texts, but they have witnesses to our Old Testament text. Okay. So the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, mostly Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic. Okay. Okay. So there's there's this Hebrew text that we don't have record of until the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm. Okay. In 250 BC. And our before the Dead Sea Scrolls, our earliest manuscript was from like the 900s AD. Oh, and that's what our Old Testament was based off of? Right. Okay, the the Hebrew Old Testament. And so that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls are such a big find, Mm -hmm. right? It it gave us our earliest text of the Hebrew Old Testament, okay? Okay. And so in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are texts that are really, really close to our modern, or that that 900s Hebrew text. That is called... The, the 900s text is part of a scribal tradition called the Masoretes, the, the Masoretic text. So that's what 
our Bibles were based off of before we found the Dead Sea Scrolls was the Masoretic text. Yeah. And they still are because of the Dead Sea Scrolls substantiated that it's a faithful copy of our Hebrew text. Okay. But then there's other. So there's the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, Mm -hmm. which varies at different places. And there is the Samaritan Pentateuch as well. Which is the, just the first five. It's Yeah, Pentateuch is the first five books, and then the Samaritan, it's the first five books as preserved by the Samaritans. Mm. And so there's a few differences there as well. Okay. So those are the three main traditions from the Old Testament. There's the Septuagint text, the Samaritan Pentateuch, and our Masoretic text. Okay, so they're kind of like three different veins, all preserving an Old Testament and then they, they compare them and that kind of thing. Yeah, you compare okay. those three to try to get to what was the original Got it. Hebrew, Got it. the Old Testament. Okay, awesome. All right. All right, hopefully that's helpful. And let's jump into part one of our episode with Dr. John Mead. Welcome to another episode of the Bible Toolbox. I'm Lydia. And I'm Luke. And we're here to help you enjoy the Bible through the tools that scholars and programmers have created for you. And today we are here with Dr. John Mead who is professor of Old Testament and director of the THM program and the Texan Canon Institute at Phoenix Seminary. So welcome, John. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you all for having me. Yeah, so just to get started, uh, we're going to talk about the Old Testament, how it came to be, and so on, and it's kind of your specialty. So why don't you just start off by saying, who are you and how did you get interested in this? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, my name is John Mead, and uh, I have been teaching Old Testament at Phoenix Seminary for about 11 years now. So I know, I know. I graduated with a PhD in 2012 and uh, moved right out to Phoenix Seminary and been here ever since. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah, quite a journey, quite, um, yeah, it's been it's been quite a ride. I I knew academically where Phoenix was. <laughs> uh, I grew up just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. So I I yeah I I knew academically about the desert. I you know all these things get <laughs> kind of pointed out on a map, you know. But I had never visited here before. I ended up interviewing for the open position in wow. 20, 2012. Yeah. So um so yeah, but now it feels like home. It's kind of interesting how that how that happens over time and. Um, so yeah, so I teach old Testament, I teach Hebrew here, uh, everything from just sort of learning the ABCs or the olives, baths and gimels, uh, to, yeah, <laughs> um, all the way up to, uh, exegesis of books like Isaiah, Job, Proverbs, uh, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I, in fact, that's probably my, my greatest joy in teaching is, uh, watching a student, uh, just you know, be confronted with the utter foreignness of the Hebrew language uh, at first. And then then they learn to read it, they learn to translate it, and they learn to to do good exegesis uh, from it, you know. So anyhow, that's that's been uh, one of my uh, highlights, I would say, over the last decade. Um, you know, I, I, I also research uh, in the areas that we're going to talk about here, the history of the Bible. Uh, but I also... Uh, enjoy this the subject areas of biblical theology, uh, learning how Christ Jesus is the climax, the fulfillment uh, of all of the promises and anticipations and type and types and pictures and foreshadowings of the Old Testament. So 
So I enjoy teaching literature and theology classes here uh, as well. So, um, yeah. So great to be here with you guys. Yeah. So why Old Testament? Why not? Yeah, why not Old Testament. Testament. Yeah. So Old Testament. I mean, I heard a, a figure recently, maybe from Miles Van Pelt. I mean, the Hebrew Bible uh, is something like seventy-seven percent of the Bible. <laughs> so 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 yes there's a new and better covenant um but of course <laughs> but but of course the old testament talks about the new and better covenant so i'm i'm okay with that you know so uh i'm not quite where some of my old professors used to be they used to talk about the new testament as the appendix you know oh my uh, <laughs> that's not quite right but but um the New Testament's a necessary appendix, if we want to say that. But the Old Testament just just lays out uh, everything, and um, so for me, uh, I wanted to I wanted to learn more about the uh, the leading up to Jesus. You know, um, mm -hmm. Stephen Dempster. Uh, he's one of my he's one of my friends and one of my my heroes uh, in this area. But he he puts it this way: uh, If you're a Tolkien fan. Um, you know, would would you just start with the return of the king and not read the two towers, not read the fellowship of the ring, not read the Hobbit, not read the Silmarillion. And uh, you, if you just dive in at the return of the king, you're you're asking, who's Aragorn? Who is Frodo? Mm -hmm. Who is Gandalf? You know, who, you don't know. You, you can read the names off the page, but you have no idea who they are. And um, and so you must you must take the time to read through the other three quarters right of sure. the uh, yeah. of the story yeah so so yeah the old testament for me uh represented um you know most of the bible now i should say this guys i study the septuagint the, the the popular name there for the greek translation of the hebrew scriptures so i don't choose when it comes to the language debate i i read <laughs> hebrew and greek there you and, go. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, and I and and I gain a whole I, I gain a lot, I think, out of reading the New Testament because I am, am fairly familiar with the Old mm. Testament also in Greek as well as Hebrew. So hmm. that's um, that's that's been fun to to, wow. to grapple with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and that'll be a that'll maybe be something we'll touch on is how to think through the, the differences in the Septuagint and the and the Hebrew. Mm. Um, Almost certainly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Can't avoid it. laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's let's start with just the scribal copying practices. How how was the Old Testament copied? Yeah, I mean this is a this is a big question, um, and one that I I think we can say now that scholars are really becoming more and more um, familiar with. Okay, so so in this book of scribes and scripture, we we in chapter one we also talk about uh, just writing, writing in the ancient world. Um, for a long time, um, we, we, I mean, really, we didn't even know we didn't really know <laughs> what what writing looked like. Um, we 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 didn't know the languages, say, of Akkadian or or another language of Ugaritic, which which came out of a place called Ugarit in the land of Israel from like, say, 1300 BC. Um, these languages weren't even really cracked until, say, around 1900. Oh, wow. Hmm. Okay. And then Ugarit, uh, Ugaritic by a guy named Cyrus Gordon, you know, a few decades later. Um, so so to, to, 
to say that study of the ancient world according to its own languages, its own texts, its own documents, to say that that's in its infancy stages is not a it's not an overstatement. Okay, so I think we're, you know, we're a little, a little over a hundred years into that kind of study. Uh, archaeology still doing a whole lot of interesting things. I enjoy, you know, probably your listeners will too. I mean, every time Christianity Today likes to, you know, post its ten top archaeological discoveries of the past year, you know, I mean, it's just it's fascinating what people still find in the sand, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, so so it's an exciting field. But anyways, in chapter one, the the, the whole history of alphabetic writing. Uh, so so we knew about hieroglyphs from Egypt. We knew about a, a, a wedge kind of writing called cuneiform from Mesopotamia. Um, but but where did the alphabet come from? I mean, that's just interesting. Like we all we use an alphabet uh, that didn't just fall out of the sky. Um, but but actually, in chapter one, we trace the history of the alphabet, um, which is the beginning of scribal activity. Right. Learning how to write your ABCs. Right. Learning how to read your ABCs. So, um, so, so how is the old Testament copied? Well, first of all, I think we have to say like with an alphabet, okay. <laughs> uh, of around 22, 23 letters. Okay. And, uh, not in pictures like hieroglyphs and not with wedges in clay tablets, like in Babylon or Assyria. Uh, we're talking about alphabetic texts, alphabetic writing. And, we can piece together a little bit uh, of how a scribe might learn to write something. Newsflash, it's not really any different than how our kids learn to read and write today. Okay, <laughs> uh, A master teacher, right, puts puts an alphabet on a chalkboard or a whiteboard, right, mm-hmm. or something like this. And a student learns how to copy those letters. You know, uh, we can actually show from, say, the ninth century B.C. on a on a clay jar. Uh, from a place called Kantilidaj Rud, that there's a there's a master scribe writing and probably an apprentice or a or a beginning scribe, a beginner scribe learning how to write uh, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, hmm. So so just like a snapshot there, something that's um, not too not too strange for us even or unfamiliar. It's just how many how many different ways you're going to learn how to do this, you know, <laughs> even over yeah. the centuries. Yeah, but I do think we take it for granted that we just like learn how to write. Like not everybody yeah. learned how to write back then. It was a big that's, deal. That's right. It's a huge deal. And I will say this though, um, it's interesting. Uh, I I don't want to overblow it to you know, but but what we're learning is that uh, it's not just sort of like a like a scribal elite, you know, uh, learning how to write. Uh, say in 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 the the center of Jerusalem, you know, at the palace or the temple. That that certainly a lot of writing and copying was happening there. But mm-hmm. but this place that I mentioned earlier, Kantiladaj Rude, is like a we we think kind of like a trade post or a military outpost of some kind, uh, well off the beaten path away from Jerusalem, and uh, and it does seem like there was a master scribe there teaching maybe soldiers is one of the theories mm-hmm. uh how, how to write you know so for for diplomacy yeah it's kind of cool so so anyways lots more color being added who, who are these scribes right what, what what did they do now somewhere along the way we don't have direct evidence of old testament documents or or the books of our bible from that early period we we don't um the earliest 
uh, artifact of anything biblical uh, are these si little tiny silver amulets um, from a place uh, called Hetef Hinnom uh, that have a little bit of the uh, the Aaronic blessing from Numbers 6, 24 mm -hmm. to 26. Um, it's like a little piece of jewelry, uh, that an amulet that someone would have worn kind of carrying around Aaron's blessing of the people, you see, upon them. So scholars will date that to maybe the 7th century BC, but that's the earliest text of resembling anything biblical, okay, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. So what we mainly know about scribes uh, copying is from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date-wise pick up, say, around 250 BC and go all the way until the Romans conquer uh, uh, Jerusalem, you say, like around 70 AD or 130 AD, and that's 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 the that's the earliest snapshot to everything we have. Uh, the, the the earliest snapshot of of the Bible, okay, um, in is in those centuries. So, uh, what do they tell us? I think that's probably the biggest question, right? What do they tell us about the state of the text of the Old Testament? And the best answer to that is. Um, um, <laughs> uh, what do they tell us more than we want to know? Uh, let's put it that way more than we want to know. Okay. When they were first discovered in 1947, so almost just over 75 years ago is when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Um, when they, when they were first discovered, the earliest texts coming out of there confirmed in most scholars' minds that, um, that basically the text of the Hebrew scriptures from that time of the Dead Sea Scrolls all the way up to the Middle Ages had been copied very, very conservatively. Okay. Uh, so much so, scholars will even talk about that strand of the text as being conservatively copied. Okay. And uh, letter for letter, fairly exact uh, copying. And it gave biblical scholars in, say, the 1950s and 60s all kinds of confidence that the text of the Hebrew Bible had been copied extremely accurately and with and with great care. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Like up until that point, like the Bible they had was accurate as to what the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And 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 then copying from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So let's say around 200 BC, all the way up to. Uh, the medieval Jewish scribes, these are known as the Masoretes, okay? Uh, but that's a thousand, a little over a thousand years of copying. Mm -hmm. So we could compare that later Middle Ages text with the earlier Dead Sea Scrolls text. And, and the earliest reports were, wow, this is, this is like exact copying. You know, it's very mm -hmm. conservative. Um, well, <laughs> Discoveries kept coming, you see, through those early decades, uh, the, the late 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, started to yield all kinds of manuscript discoveries. In fact, something I should point out, there's almost a thousand uh, texts, a thousand remains of, of scrolls found at Qumran. Just over 200 of them are biblical. Okay, so that's kind of interesting. Like, so some of it's little, like, kind of banal and mundane, like, you know, maybe receipts or something like this. Uh, other texts were literary. So, so like, say, the Book of Enoch, you know, was, parts of it were found at Qumran. 
uh, things like that. But but over 200 scrolls were uh, biblical. OK, so those are the ones we're talking about mainly. OK, mm -hmm. are those. Yeah. And and so what happens is, is that scholars continue to discover these things. Scholars continue to 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 study to to study them and analyze them. And it turns out that not all the Dead Sea Scrolls equal the text of the medieval Jewish text. OK, and this is the stuff of uh, the sensational stuff, oftentimes of Time magazine, of Newsweek, things like, oh, you thought you were reading the Bible. Well, gotcha. You're mm -hmm. you're reading the wrong Bible or something like this. Um, well, what we try to do in, in the book, Scribes and Scripture, is we talk about it as free copying. OK, that is there's there's a mode of copying at Qumran which, by the way, Qumran is on the northwest side of the Dead Sea, okay, in Israel. So that's that's what I'm talking about. There's like 12 caves, like these cave mm -hmm. dwellings, you know, pretty cool. And that's uh, where the scrolls were found? That's where the scrolls are found, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you Google that, and, I mean, these these caves are, like, really cool and, like, elaborate, you know. And uh, But, yeah, that's where they found these manuscripts. And so, um, so, so there were scribes at this place not copying the text exactly okay let me let me give you an example uh there's one there's a text of deuteronomy with the 10 commandments in deuteronomy 5 and um and your listeners will be aware too that there's another version of the 10 commandments in exodus chapter 20 right there's actually two versions of the mm -hmm. 10 commandments yes uh and in particular there's two versions of the sabbath day commandment so in exodus 20 uh Israelites are instructed to uh, reserve, reserve or sanctify the seventh day as a Sabbath rest. Okay, uh, because God created the earth, the world, and the and the heavens and the earth right in six days, and He rested on the seventh day. So you have an analogy with creation. But in Deuteronomy five, they're still called to to remember or keep the Sabbath day. Um, but this time, it's because God redeemed them out of Egypt and is bringing them into the promised land. Therefore, they should keep the Sabbath day. So there's actually two different reasons hmm. for why one should keep the Sabbath. Well, this must not have, I don't know if this didn't set well with a scribe. I don't think that's quite it. Uh, but rather, there was a text at Qumran created, which actually combines the rationales for keeping the Sabbath. So in other words, it's mainly a text of Deuteronomy 5, but it takes Exodus 20 verse 11 and puts it right in there. Okay. Sure. And we look and we look at that and we go, well, that's not how I would have copied it today. Cause that's not copying, right? Per mm -hmm. se. Like, like there's a there's a little bit more intervention, right, going on there. Okay. Uh so what do we do with this? Right? What do we do with this? Um, and I think in the book I even say, like, how dare you mess with the Ten Commandments, you know? <laughs> I mean, come on, these are like etched in stone, right? And you've got you've got a scribe that's uh now now combining things and turning to changing things around. I should say too that in this scroll, uh Deuteronomy eight, verses eight to ten, I think it is, is actually put at the beginning to introduce the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy mm. five. So so we have two options here, right? This is either textual chaos, like there really was a version of Deuteronomy that had all these things switched around, all these harmonizations, all these things going on, or, or we recognize this particular copy of Deuteronomy 5 
as a as a separate creation, you see, maybe for a liturgical purpose in the in these liturgical readings of the Ten Commandments. Okay, uh, that is fundamentally based on a version of Deuteronomy that looks like our own. Okay, do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So um, this would not be unlike this would not be unlike us creating a version of the Bible, taking synoptic passages kind of seriously, you know, like I think of the gospels, uh, uh, say, say taking a life of Christ approach where you're combining various elements of the synoptics, you know, and you're weaving them together into one story. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Uh, In other words, this particular scribe we're talking about of the 10 commandments, he couldn't resist (laughs) combining certain synoptical elements. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, but we wouldn't look at that and go, oh, well, he had a very different – he had like a, a foreign version of Deuteronomy. Like we, we just wouldn't look at that and go, man, this is chaotic. I think we need to look at it and go, no, no, it's an intentional creation. We can tell what text he was using in order to to, to create the, the version that he did. Um, but I also don't want to imply – I also don't want to uh, interpret – this action on the part of the scribe is he's trying to create like a, I don't know, like an alternative version or something mm-hmm. of Deuteronomy five. I, I don't think it really, I don't think the data really plays out that way. So, so, it, so to the, to the unsuspecting, it looks chaotic. Yes. But when you start to look at that whole text, like from beginning to end, you look at it and you go, ah, okay. He is making a harmonized text here of the, of the 10 commandments. And he's trying to maybe create a text for liturgy that will uh, facilitate the reading mm-hmm. of the Ten Commandments out loud. So, mm-hmm. so it's so so. How did they copy the Old Testament? Right, that's the question. <laughs> how did they copy the <laughs> Hebrew Bible? Yeah. Well, sometimes, oftentimes, straightforwardly, they just they just copied a a, a very rugged text conservatively, letter for letter, no question. Um, and then other times they're still, I think, motivated by faithfulness. They are trying, they are, uh, uh, copying a text for different per for a different purpose. You see, uh, maybe for lit- liturgy, sometimes they might even be creating a text for commentary, right. Or interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we need to take that, uh, possibility seriously as well. I guess one thing I should I should mention is that no scribe ever says or writes at the top of his text, this is for liturgy. <laughs> <laughs> he never says this is for, you know, interpretation or this is for conservative copying. They never tell us that. We're all trying to um, inductively, you know, sort through this evidence. But the whole picture, I think, is this. Scribes wanted to make sure their audiences knew the text. They wanted their readers, their users to be able to read the text. Sometimes that meant copying like we would think of like an uh, uh, an NASB, a New American Standard Bible English translation, right? We, we question the English, right, of the NASB at times because it's so wooden, isn't it? Um so, so sometimes a scribe would copy all the archaisms in front of him, knowing his audience may not know what a word means even, but I'm just going to copy it anyway. At other times, in fact, guys, it's so, it's so sophisticated now, scholars are convinced that they've got the handwriting of certain scribes down so well 
that they can show that it's the same scribe wow. who would, yeah, interesting, who would copy conservatively and that same scribe copy more dynamically or more freely, you see. It's mm. really interesting. That's really, really interesting. And so, so, so one scribe can be both conservative and the same scribe can be like um, NIV style, right? Or, <clears throat> um, or you might even think of like a, like a precious moments Bible, right? Like, I mean, think of the, think of the dynamism going on in that, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So, so that's, um, I think when I, when I, when it comes down to like, how do we see the text copied? We got to be open. The, the data pulls us in a couple different directions. Um, but at the same time, the data points us forward to, okay, these guys just wanted to make sure that they're used that the users of their text could understand them and could use them. So, yeah. Yeah. Why don't you talk about, um, the, the different versions that we have. So like, um, right. so is the, is the Septuagint doing a similar thing there where, yeah. where the yeah, differences right. occur or how do you understand? And also with like the Samaritan Pentateuch, how do you yeah. explain the differences there? Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. So yeah, so we talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, we've talked. We've we just kind of glanced past the later Masoretic text, okay, um, of the medieval period. Okay, Jews copying the text very, very strictly at that point. But but also in the ancient period, um, we have other snapshots of what the Hebrew Bible looked like. One of them uh, is let's just talk about the Samaritan Pentateuch for a moment. Uh, as its name implies, uh, it's only of the first five books of the Old Testament, right? The Samaritans did not copy texts uh, past the book of Deuteronomy, okay? Um, but just, just to kind of put a fine point on the Samaritan Pentateuch, it, it essentially uses a text like the one I've been describing with this, this precursor to the Masoretic text, okay? It uses that text... It, it, that is, its scribes use that text, even as they are making fairly large modifications to it, okay, at times. If you look at Deuteronomy 27, uh, is it verse 3 or 4? Uh, in our Bible, it talks about how an altar is to be set up on Mount Ebal in the land of Israel when, they when, the, when the Israelites enter the land, right? Okay. Um, I'm pretty sure almost all of our English versions have that. But the Samaritan Pentateuch has a similar text there, except the altar is to be set up on Mount Gerizim. And that little detail helps us make sense of that story in John chapter 4, where Jesus is going through Samaria, and he talks to the Samaritan woman at the well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she, of course, right, gets onto the topic of religion. Okay. I mean, who doesn't, right? But especially in those days. But in those days, we certainly do. And she says to Jesus, we know that you Jews say that we must worship in Jerusalem at the temple. Yes. But, but our fathers, our ancestors say that we are to worship on this mountain, she says. And that is Mount Gerizim. Yeah. Um, the, the placement of the altar is key. It's interesting that, you know, David, <clears throat> at the end of Second uh, Samuel, he buys a plot of land and he builds an altar that becomes the place where the temple is ultimately built. 
you see, in the book of First Kings. Uh, wherever that altar is, that's where the shrine or the temple is going to be built. So for the Samaritan, the Samaritans, their canon is only the first five books. So their and their altar is on Mount Gerizim, which is where their temple was ultimately built. The Jews, the revelation continues for them into Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first, second Samuel, etc. And so there's a whole lot more development to divine and to, to divine revelation there mm -hmm. uh, that they're taking into account. But ultimately, the Samaritan Pentateuch. It's got a few of the idiosyncrasies of Samaritan theology baked into it, but those are relatively few. Uh, it, it shows some other kinds of minor editings. The fundamental point of the Samaritan Pentateuch, though, is that they used a text much like the Masoretic text. Okay, So the Samaritan Pentateuch indirectly attests to the ancient character of the Masoretic text. That's the main point. It went through some obvious secondary editings and modifications, but of that already conservatively copied text. Okay, so that's that's how I read the Samaritan Pentateuch. But still, it's got some fun readings in there. It's got some fun readings, but we recognize them as secondary readings reflecting their the Samaritan editors more than, say, the original text. Okay, so that's that's how I read the Samaritan Pentateuch. Now, the Septuagint. This, this is the Greek translation of these books. Septuagint is an abbreviation for the Latin word septuaginta, meaning 70. And it gets its name from the story of 72, and then abbreviated to 70, translators, Jewish translators of the first five books of the Old Testament. So you all are probably familiar with this story, but I'll just for the for your listeners, I will just rehash it very, very briefly in a, in a document known as Aristeas, the letter of Aristeas. This is written in Egypt, Alexandria. They uh, the Jewish community in Alexandria recognized that the copies of their scriptures were, um, how shall we say, uh, in disrepair. OK, they were in great need of healing. Okay, their copies were in disrepair. So the, as the story goes, they send a letter back and uh, to the temple in, in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem sends 72 of its finest scholars and translators. And that's that's roughly what six from each of the 12 tribes mm -hmm. of Israel. Okay, so 72 chaps travel from Jerusalem down to Alexandria where they end up translating the uh, the Hebrew text of the Pentateuch into Greek. Now most scholars don't don't buy this story, okay uh, they, they 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 think there's a few details that are essential. Uh, the place of Alexandria is essential. okay so everyone's convinced that most of these Greek translations occurred in Alexandria, Egypt. That is not in Jerusalem. Okay, that's that's one point. Um, <clears throat> most scholars are convinced it happened between, say, 280 B.C. and 250 B.C. So this is under the reign of Ptolemy II in Egypt. Okay, so um, so scholars are convinced that's okay. What they what they're not convinced of is that there were a lot of different translators involved, like an NIV 
translation committee or something like no 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 what what they think happened is it's one translator per book okay mm. because it because the translation of the book is so consistent from beginning to end mm. so so the general assumption is that there's one greek one uh translator uh per book and that, that's important to bear in mind this is not a translation by committee okay uh, like we're maybe used to with some of our English translations. So one translation per book. So so the question is why we're talking about how a text was copied. And then we're also now talking about how was it translated from Hebrew into Greek. Okay, things getting complicated now, right? I think it's fair to say. Um, what we're trying to ask, what we're trying to determine is what does that ancient translation tell us about the character of the text? that they translated. Generally, y'all, the Septuagint, so-called, tells us that that same Hebrew text is being conservatively copied. Now, that's not to say there aren't big differences at places, okay? Um, in fact, I was just walking a, a, a master's class um, <clears throat> in textual criticism yesterday through a problem known as the, well, the David and Goliath story problem, okay? And uh, I'll mention this. We, we can't solve this today. Um, but, but I think it's important to know that the Septuagint version, the Greek translation of the David and Goliath story, like right around chapter 1 Samuel 17, verse 12, through about, uh, what is it, like 34, I think it is. So some 20, 22, 24 verses um, is omitted. It's omitted. In the Greek it is? Right. In the Greek, it's omitted. Okay. Yeah. And um, what that what that's the part that's omitted is the second biographical introduction to David. So David is thoroughly introduced in chapter 16. And our English translations are typically based on the Hebrew text there. Um, and there's a second kind of biographical introduction to David, you see, in chapter 17, before he goes in and, and kills Goliath. So scholars re re really big time wrestle with that, right? What do we do with that? And, um, I, you know, again, it, this is, there's only two possible solutions here, right? One text uh, grows or one text shrinks, right? And, and it's very difficult to decide um what what is which is which is what there okay uh there's a canon in textual criticism saying the shorter text is usually or more probably the original and so so some scholars have said well then that would mean that the septuagint version that was ba that was based on a shorter hebrew text maybe that's the more original and then a little bit later um a second biographical introduction was was included, you see, um, in in and that's the text that got transmitted all the way up through uh, the Middle Ages. Do, does that make sense? So, mm. I, I'm not I'm not giving an answer here because it's too it's too complicated. But but that's a that's kind of one of the big problems. Okay, and the set, but it's the Septuagint that actually uh, illuminates. Or, or or sheds light on that problem, um. But again, text critics focus on differences. If you back up and focus on similarities between Septuagint and Masoretic text, 
I mean, it's like 90% agreement, you see, between these things across the whole Old Testament. Yeah. But but there are but there are some differences for sure. Uh, the David and Goliath story being one. And most listeners will be surprised by that just because it's not signaled in the English translation at all. Mm. So think think as uh, with your New Testament glasses, go to the ending of Mark. Mm -hmm. Right. There's always that solid line right after verse eight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This this text is not included in the earliest and best manuscripts or something like this. Uh, I wonder why we don't do that with mm -hmm. the David and Goliath story. Right. We could. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was talking about this with the students yesterday and they just they 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 had been confronted with that problem for the first time through the class. And um, and they just they kind of wrestled with the fact the reason why this hits so differently than, say, the ending of Mark is because we just didn't we weren't alerted to it. This is the first time we've ever mm -hmm. come to terms with it. Um, our English translations don't don't alert us to that mm -hmm. in scribes and scripture. I, I give we give just a short list of these kinds of problems, just highlighting some of the bigger differences. But honestly, if you tally all that up. It's it's really a drop in the bucket compared to the whole, which shows that the Septuagint largely supports the same Hebrew text. Okay, mm -hmm. so yeah. so I don't want to give the impression like this is the way it is all the time. It's not. There really are mm -hmm. some special special problems. I like to call them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. so your quick opinion: How tall was Goliath? Ah, yes. Okay, yes, because that's part of it. Yes, my quick opinion. Uh, so let's see. You're asking me today. I think I think he's tall. I, li I like our English translate. Most of our English <laughs> translations. I think he's nine feet nine inches. So six six cubits and a span. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. That's that's um, the Hebrew version versus the yeah Septuagint. Septuagint. And well, and even four Q So one of the Dead Sea Scrolls has him as shorter too. Oh, okay. But mm -hmm. yeah, but I still think I still think tall works. A later scribe shortens him to highlight Saul's cowardice, I think. Mm -hmm. That's that's my okay. two cents on that. But we're going to debate that one until the cows come home. So. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode of The Bible Toolbox. All of the resources mentioned in this episode are posted on our website, thebibletoolbox.com. There you can also find out more information on how to give and support us. And we have loved all of the encouragement and feedback we've received from you. So thanks so much.